Good morning. Well, did you see him? Last Sunday afternoon, I'm sure you saw him. Snuggled up right there in the midst of the Chiefs and the Eagles, Rihanna, Walter White, Maya Rudolph, and a million Adam Drivers. Twice, Jesus showed up at the big game. Congratulations, Jesus. Yeah, Jesus showed up uh, for the big game as part of the $100 million He Gets Us campaign. The He Gets Us campaign that's been going on for the past 10 months across billboards, YouTube channels, television screens, all of them portraying Jesus as someone who understands the human condition. In particular, last week's $20 million spots to detail first is called the childlikeness, as Kyle just hit on, and love for our enemies. Now, Jesus as a Super Bowl advertisement resulted in a wide variety of reactions and responses over the past week. For some, the ad brought excitement to see Jesus, you know, set before 100 million people and the potential impact conversations transforms lives it could lead to. For others, it sparked interest in the person of Jesus. Maybe some of you are here today because of those ads, but it seems these groups were the minority. Many had less than happy feelings. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, the Democratic politician and activist, said Jesus wouldn't make fascism look benign, which she argued the ads did. Charlie Kirk, the conservative uh, activist and talk show host, said Jesus wouldn't pander to liberals and argued the ads were made by woke tricksters. Add to all this the um actually articles that took issue with the ethics held by those who produced and funded the ads, asserting that Jesus' ethic was one of love and inclusion and not, you know, fill in the blank. Others denounced the ads, asserting that Jesus is not a brand to be marketed like Doritos or M&Ms. But most prominent was a feeling of frustration and even anger because Jesus wouldn't spend that much money on a commercial in a moment when Turkey, Turkey, Syria, and Lebanon continue to reel from deadly earthquakes, Somalia continues in their famine, Ukrainian refugees stand in need of care. Like that's not what Jesus would have allocated that money to. Or even while agreeing on the importance of evangelism and people knowing Jesus, that Jesus would have directed that money to support local church communities on mission in contexts where the cost of ministry is high. Now, I am not here to tell you how you should feel about the, the Super Bowl ads. I'm sorry. You maybe you wanted me to. How should I feel? I'm not here to do that today. But as I and I even I, I, even if I wanted to, the reality is, as I watched it with a crowd of some of you on Sunday, all of us felt some mix of all of these emotions, like at the same time. And so, most interesting to me is not how should we feel about this, but most interesting to me is all of these responses over the past week and how heated they've been. Because we live in this age of a culturally held assumption that Jesus is irrelevant and obsolete. And this past week was this reminder that he's as relevant and significant as ever. Not because of the ads, but because of the debates and the discussions about the ads. Regardless of political, cultural, even religious background, every single one of them assumed the importance of Jesus. The debate of last week, the debate of our time, is not over the importance of Jesus, but over the identity of Jesus. Who is the he that gets us? And so this past week was a potent example of how in our age, the question, who is Jesus, spawns, like Adam Driver, seemingly infinite answers. And each one of them often serves, hear me, as more of a reflection on the identity of the person answering than the identity of Jesus of Nazareth, the historical person. Like the Rorschach test. I'm sure most of you know what this is. When people are shown an ink blot and they're asked to interpret what they see, with the answers revealing nothing about the splot of ink on the piece of paper, but the inner drives and desires of the person. For most of us in the West, our answer to who is Jesus and what he's like is like an ink blot test. What we find in the answer reveals little more than an idealized version of our own identity. And so if I lean left, then Jesus leans left. If I lean right, then Jesus leans right. My political view, my personality, my take on sexuality and gender, or even my diet. Like there is a Jesus was vegan, uh, you know, you can find the people. So here's all of this. This is a similar dynamic, what we're talking about right now, a similar dynamic to what plays out on social media every single Martin Luther King Jr. day. 
Everyone agrees Dr. King was a significant person of enduring importance. And so people go on Google, they search and find a picture and a quote to post. While either intentionally or unintentionally utilizing and finding a quote which affirms or fits within their pre-existing thoughts on justice and race in America. So what the post comes up of hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Or freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor, it must be demanded by the oppressed. Both quotes of Martin Luther King Jr. So folks pick the quote that reflects, affirms, and recognizes their position on the subject, whether that's that racism is largely a personal issue that must be met with love rather than hate, or it's a systemic issue that needs to be called out from and changed. But here's the thing. Dr. King wasn't an ambiguous inkblot person for us to make into our own image. He either was Dr. King or he wasn't. We either have a true view of the person or someone that we've made up in our own image for the sake of our Instagram. He's not a Rorschach man for us to interpret as we desire. However, most people are not interested in understanding and dealing with and working through the identity and the words, the nuance of Dr. King. All they want or all they're looking for is a recognition of their pre-existing identity. And so similarly, Jesus was not an ambiguous person. As Oswald Chambers writes, Jesus Christ's teaching never beat around the bush. But all the while, in our day today, we have infinite opinions about Jesus, and they all emerge out of the infinite options of identity that we've chosen for ourselves. We discern or decide who we are, and then intentionally or unintentionally, we craft a Rorschach Jesus who agrees with us. So here's the, just, this is the question leading us into this new series. To a world that clearly still holds Jesus as significant and relevant to our day, the question is, are we content to make Jesus into our own image? Are you content with a Jesus who never disagrees with you, but largely puppets your views and largely just parrots what you think and what you believe? Or are you willing to flip that cultural script to engage with the person of Jesus, with the identity of the one who changed the world, and open yourselves not to changing him into your image and your identity, but allowing your identity be shaped by his. Now, I know this is a lot and really probably too much to expect, you know, a historical survey on Jesus of Nazareth and a theological treatise on the subject of anthropology in a 30-second spot between Ben Affleck working at Dunkin' Donuts and me crying over a dog commercial. But here's the, I think, I genuinely think we can get somewhere of worth over the next seven weeks in this teaching series. I am looking at the identity of Jesus in John's gospel. In the fourth eyewitness account of the life of Jesus in the gospel of John, multiple times Jesus makes these I am dot, dot, dot statements, which serve all the time as just his answers on the questions of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And then around them, we also find Jesus presenting his perspective on our identity as well. And so as we approach Good Friday and Easter and the season that the church is traditionally called Lent, we're going to allow these next weeks to answer those questions. Who is the he that gets us? Who is Jesus? And who is the us that he gets? Who are we? And so for some of you here that you're the skeptic or you're investigating the person of Jesus, this series is for you for you to join us, for you to bring your questions, work through your doubts, investigate the person of Jesus, because we believe and we want you to see that Jesus is not only someone who changes history, he has the ability and desire to change your story. And for the followers of Jesus in the room, we are not immune to Rorschach Jesus. You've heard me talk about Stretch Armstrong Jesus and Build a Jesus workshops over the years, and this is just one more you know, brick in the wall. This is a necessary rhythm in our age to keep checking our assumptions about Jesus at the door and to allow him to once again say, no, this is who I am, and for us to carry that into our lives. So let's get into our first I am statement of the series. If you have your Bibles with you, would you turn to John chapter 8, verse 30. John chapter 8, verse 30. Now, obviously, we're jumping right into the eighth chapter of the book, which means we're jumping into the middle of the story. So just as a brief kind of, you know, bringing us up to speed before we read, we're at the height of Jesus' public ministry right now. 
He's a captivating, often controversial, mysterious rabbi and miracle worker. And so right now we're meeting Jesus in Jerusalem during the week of one of Israel's high holy days, the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. And Jesus has been in the temple all afternoon fielding questions from this giant crowd about who he is and and what he's up to. What is this new movement that Jesus is kicking off? So once you're to John chapter 8, join me in standing for the reading of the scriptures. We do this each week as a way of bringing our whole selves and our whole bodies to this word, receiving what we read and hear today as the spirit of God, as his word to us. So, oh, before we read, let's just pray and uh, before we enter into this time. Father, we pray that you would make your name great today. Jesus, we ask that you would reveal your true identity to us, that your words given 2,000 years ago would still have relevance, impact, and significance on the way that we see you. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd speak through me. Holy Spirit, would you speak and do something within the individual hearts of each of us here, bringing us into the freedom and the truth and the life that Jesus has for us. Speak, we pray. Amen. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 30. As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We're descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Jesus responded, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave doesn't remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but here you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of my father. So then you do what you've heard from your father. Our father's Abraham, they replied. Well, if you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you're trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. You're doing what your father does. Well, we weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I'm here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me? Who among you can convict me of sin? If I'm telling you the truth, then why don't you listen to me? The one who is from God listens to God's words, and that's why you don't listen, because you're not from God. The Jews responded to him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? I don't have a demon, Jesus answered. On the contrary, I'm here honoring my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it and judges. Truly, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, so did the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he's never going to taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, about the, whom you say, he is our God, he's the one who glorifies me. You don't know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar just like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet, and yet you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. You may be seated. Well, here we enter into a heated conversation with, uh, you know, the normal topics of a comfortable afternoon conversation, slavery, children of the devil, demon possession, sexual immorality, accusations, Father Abraham, and an attempted murder. 
I won't fault you for feeling a little bit lost. So to help us wade into what's going on here, toward the end of the passage that we just read are two questions that serve as the climax of what the whole passage is about. John 8, 53. Jesus, or the, excuse me, the uh, Jewish crowd says, are you greater than our father Abraham who died, and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be, Jesus? Some translations have, who are you making yourself to be? Jesus, who do you think you are? The first question this whole passage is built around is the identity of Jesus. Who does he think he is? And the second question is, are you greater than our father Abraham? It's a question about the collective identity of the Jewish crowd. It's meant to be read with ourselves in them. Who do we think we are? And so following these questions of identity as our plumb line through the passage, there have been whole books written about different sections of this passage today. I just want to look at three questions around this idea of identity today. The first question is looking at who are we? What is our identity? And we're going to look at the answers that the crowd gives, the answers that we give, and the answers that Jesus gives. And this kind of follows within verses 30 through 47. Next, we're going to look at the question of who is he? Who is Jesus? What's Jesus' identity? We'll look at the answers that the crowd gives, and then we'll look at the answer that Jesus gives before we end with the question, who is he to you? The question of the identity of Jesus, and what is your response to these words? So, sound good? Identity. This is Identity Sunday, I guess. Who are we? Let's begin. Look back with me at verse 30 at the beginning of our passage. Whereas Jesus is teaching, and the crowd is listening, and what we're told is they believe, twice we're told, they believe in him. They have had some connection with his words, some resonance with his teaching. And so Jesus continues in the conversation that he's having with them, and it builds to one of his most popular sayings. Though we often leave out the first portion about uh, you know, being true disciples and continuing in Jesus' words, all of us know you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's regularly quoted and riffed on in books, movies. It was on Johnny Depp's Twitter account at the close of the trial last year. It's one of Jesus' most known sayings. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But how does the crowd receive Jesus' famous, you know, Twitter-worthy words? Verse 33, they're offended. We're descendants of Abraham. How can you say we've never, we've, we never, we, we've never been enslaved to anyone? How can you say we will become free? So Jesus' famous this little quote here, his offer of truth and freedom, they take as an offense, as Jesus seems to be insinuating that they presently don't have the full truth and they presently aren't free. We've never been enslaved to anyone which is either supreme forgetfulness of the crowd because there isn't one world power the Jewish people hadn't been enslaved to. As they say, we are not enslaved to anyone. They're currently under political captivity to Rome. Or they understand that Jesus is talking about something other than political subjugation. That he's talking about a deeper inner freedom of the spirit. That brave heart, you can take our land, but you cannot take our freedom type of freedom. The freedom they presume to have is the freedom that they have within their identity as what they defend in, the children of Abraham. The truth that they have is what they presume to be have through the teaching of the Torah and the Talmud, that is the rabbi's commentary on the Torah. So they have freedom in their identity as the children of Abraham, and they have the truth through the writings of their people, the, the writings that guide their communities in, in honorable lives that sets the boundaries of what's acceptable for the people of God. So Jesus has just insinuated, we don't have truth and we don't have freedom. And keep in mind, what, what, where, what's happening right now? They are presently at the end of a week celebrating the Feast of Booths. All week long, they've been commemorating their identity as the people of Abraham, commemorating Israel's journey through the wilderness and Abraham's own cultural so sojourning. They have been steeping in the central figure of their history and culture and the freedom that they have. They have spent the past week soaking in their ancestral identity and the freedom they have, reading and singing from the Torah and the truth that they have as children of Abraham. And Jesus has just said, if you continue in my word, my teaching, if you continue in my Torah, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I.e., you aren't actually free and you presently don't have the truth. This the famous quote that gets used all over the place is Jesus' subversion of their entire collective tribal identity as being the basis for an assumption of freedom. 
Now hear me here. This is very important to note here because this text has been butchered in history. It's important just to read and notice that what Jesus is getting at as the text progresses is not an attack on their Jewishness. He's Jewish. He taught the Torah. The problem isn't their Jewishness or their, their Torah. He taught the Torah. He is Jewish. Rather, he's inviting them into a deeper expansion of their understanding of what it means to actually be free and to know the truth. But they take this invitation as an attack. But before we look at what freedom and truth Jesus might be pointing to and Jesus' perspective on their identity, I think it's worth briefly just kind of considering our own identity. Because our Western identity is we're not the children of Abraham. We're, we would say we're the children of nobody. Our Western identity is not rooted in our familial lines or ancestral lineage or family traditions or communal honor. Instead, here in the West, we find those institutions and their expectations on people as restrictive, as a threat to individual identity. That's the problem in the world is these sorts of tribal identities, these kinds of dominant culture groups that hold people to a particular way of living. And that's because we are not the children of Abraham, we're the children of the Enlightenment. You see, our presumption of freedom and truth is not found in the family of the patriarchs, the fact that we belong in the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that we live within the framework of the philosophers, Rousseau, Freud, and Marx. We have a different subsystem that we think through. We are not the children of Abraham. We're children of the Enlightenment. And as the children of the Enlightenment, from Rousseau, the philosopher, we inherited the belief that freedom is about being true to one's inner self, that freedom equals authenticity, and so embracing the natural and untamed self, casting off the external limitations put on you by society and those boundaries, that's what true freedom is. And from Freud, we were handed down belief that the deepest part of that inner self which must be freed is our sexuality. In our culture, we view Freud like Moses and the sexual revolution as our exodus moment, the march out of the repressive slavery of sexual mores of the living past. And in the tradition of Marx, we question the legitimacy of any dominant groups like Israel's collective familial religious identity and their claims of objective truth. That this all, the claim to truth, is little more than the decrees of those in power sent to, to repress the masses. So hear me, even while our Western identity rejects tradition, institutions, and values, we are not as individualistic as we seem. We are all just playing out our own flavor of the same script, of this family of the Enlightenment tradition. Like a high schooler shopping at the mega chain Hot Topic in order to be different. <laughs> in our age, for all of our talk about individuality, we're all wearing the same mass-produced Panic at the Disco shirt. As children of the Enlightenment, we presume if I know my truth, my truth will set me free. If I know my truth, the truth of my inner inherently sexual feelings and desires, my truth will set me free from the oppressive powers that be. And Jesus' words are just as confronting to our children of the Enlightenment as it was for the children of Abraham. He's challenging your notion of freedom. He implies that not only does objective truth begin exist, it's found only in his words. Similarly, Jesus' invitation to be free is found in continuing in his words, not by being true to oneself as the place and process of finding your own freedom. You see, for all the differences we may feel looking back at, oh, these ancestral family line and like, oh, that's so archaic and, and repressive, we are living within just our own little version of it, our own presumptions of identity and freedom and truth, which Jesus, by saying, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, just, just shuts down. He shuts down. So then the question that we're provoked to ask is, what then, Jesus, is your take on our identity? If we are not free and have the truth, then what are we? Verse 34, Jesus responded, truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but the son, a son, remains forever. So Jesus moves from insinuating, notice the movement he's made, from just insinuating, you're not free, you don't have the truth, to explicitly saying, everyone who commits sin, that is anyone with a pattern of pride, a rhythm of lust, a habit of gossip, of lies, unbridled anger, of greed, anyone with a rhythm and process, a committing of sin within their life is a slave to it. They are not free. 
And he says they will not remain forever, that that slavery ends in what Jesus alludes to, death and alienation from God, being uprooted from the household, from the life that you were made for and brought to the place of death. So Jesus reframes the experience of slavery, a familiar concept as we just talked about for the people of Israel, as a condition not just of the world, but a condition of the heart. N.T. Wright writes, when, actually in one of the recommended resources for the series, when someone sins, Jesus is saying, this isn't just a moral glitch. It, it's not simply about an occasional oopsie. It's not a lapse or a mistake. It's a sign that someone or something else is calling the shots. You may still have to agree to the impulses, but your resistance has been weakened. Your slave master has given the orders and you find yourself driven helplessly down the wrong path. See, Jesus chose the slavery metaphor precisely because it was offensive and distasteful to his audience who were presently under Roman rule. Some of us shirk when the Bible uses this slavery language and you're writing that as like largely free people, at least from political subjugation. And we're like, oh, that's so offensive. He's saying this to current slaves. And so this isn't Jesus making light of external political subjugation. He's lifting up the issues of your heart for you to see them for as offensive and dark and destructive and evil as they actually are. So Jesus isn't saying that outward slavery doesn't matter and it's all about what's going in the heart. He's saying there is a controlling force over humanity which is robbing you of freedom, regardless of your familial descent, regardless of your children of the enlightenment, and it will end with you not remaining in the household forever, an allusion to death and alienation. In verse 36 to 38, Jesus continues and he roots this diagnosis of their enslaved identity by looking at their actions. He goes, who, what you do is a revelation of who you are. And when I look at you, humanity, I say, like father, like son, like father, like daughter. And this is where the debate gets incredibly heated because the crowds are doubling down on their presumed freedom. They make a subtle dig at Jesus' mother's claims of, of miraculous conception, that line about sexual immorality. That's just as much them saying, we're pure Israelites as going, we've heard the stories about Mary's miracle. Before asserting all of this, that they are not only the children of Abraham, they go even deeper and they say, not only are we children of Abraham, we're children of God. We are the people who have the freeing truth. And Jesus replies, you don't live like his children. Rather, he says in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. Your father was a murderer from the beginning. This is allusion to the opening chapters of the Bible in Genesis. And he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. He's truthless. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature. It is his first language because he is a liar and the father of lies. So notice just what Jesus is doing here. Jesus has just dealt a death blow to their assumed identity of freedom and truth. He has deconstructed all of their answers of who do you think you are by starting with, hey, freedom and truth, them saying we're free and we have truth. And Jesus goes, well, no, you're living like you're enslaved to something. You don't have control over your life. And now he moves then to you don't have the truth because you're living in a lie. You have been deceived of what freedom actually is. He says to all who are in this process that are enslaved to sin, you are children of an invisible but real intelligence that he calls the devil, who since the beginning has been at work to destroy life and truth, whose strategy, whose first language is lies. And so here you are claiming you have truth. And I'm saying, you, you just talk daddy's language. You listen to and speak lies. And whose end goal is to drive souls and society into ruin, to decimate love. For everyone who sins, Jesus says, you are deceived and you are enslaved to this destroyer. And now you follow in your daddy's footsteps. It's a story similar to what plays out in the 90s staple that was Hook. <laughs> I watched it again with my kids for the first time. Y'all, it's so good. If you never saw Hook, it's so good. So um, just track with me for a second. So remember, we've got the whole story is about a grown-up Peter Pan played by uh, the remarkable Robin Williams, Hook played by Dustin Hoffman. And the whole plot of the story is Hook comes over from Neverland, kidnaps his kids, Jack and Maggie. But specifically, if you remember the story, what does he do with Jack? Through deception and lies, Captain Hook turns Jack into a mini-me. By the end of the story, here you have Jack dressed like a pirate, acting like a pirate, about to get his first hook, all to the point where he believes he's Hook's son, and he doesn't even recognize his real father anymore. Jack is both Hook's son 
and hook slave. Now, albeit this is a really silly image for what Jesus apparently takes very seriously, but it's just helpful for me in imagining what Jesus sees is what's going on within this world today and within humanity. We may presume we're free. We may think we have the truth. It's all a con whipped up to deceive you and I as an attack against our true father to the point that we think he's now the enemy and we can't trust him. And so we carry ourselves away enslavement, pretending that we have freedom. We've been dragged away by deception and into destruction, into, once again, Jesus' language is the word sin. Sin is what, I love this, Martin Luther defined 500 years ago as humans turned in on themselves. Pre, Pre-enlightenment, Martin Luther says, sin is human beings turned in on themselves. We are deceived and destroyed as we turn in on ourselves. What is greed? What is selfishness? What is lust? What is anger and vitriol? What is you fill in the blank? What is your covetousness but you turning in on yourselves? Your life becoming about yourself. This is what Jesus calls enslavement, but this is precisely what we've been told is freedom as children of enlightenment. As Freud taught, all the psychoses uh, that people suffer are because of the repression of their inner desires. We've been told the real enslavement is, excuse me, is your repression of the inner self. And freedom is for you to turn in on yourself and bring that self part of you out. And yet here we are 100 years plus into following Father Freud's tradition, and mental health is at an all-time low. One report from this past week came out detailing how depression and suicidal ideation is at an all-time high, skyrocketed within teenage girls in what one Atlantic writer called a mysterious tragedy. Mysterious. For Jesus, the tragedy is not a mystery. We have dragged a whole generation being sold that what freedom is, is in fact, at the end of the day, truly what it's showing within our bodies and the destruction of our minds and our souls is labor and toil that oppresses us and leaves us weary. We've been duped into desiring our own destruction. We may think we're radically independent individuals who can do as we please without reference to any other authority, but in the words of Bob Dylan, you gotta serve somebody. And Jesus says to all who sin, to all turned in on themselves, it's the devil and he's killing you. He's stealing your life. He's destroying all that you were made for. How's that for he gets us out? (laughs) He gets us. Jesus gets the human condition. You're sin enslaved children of the devil. (laughs) This is such an incredibly dark diagnosis on the human identity. And honestly, one that I think, oh, do I say it now? That so much of, I believe, the, the reasons why we reinterpret Jesus around who we are and then we make Jesus look this way is, is because of the fact that we don't think we're actually this bad. So we don't need a Jesus who, like, dies for sin to save me. I just need somebody who kind of helps me become the inner person. But see, Jesus has this incredibly dark diagnosis on your identity and mine. What's going on in here apart from him? But he is not content to leave us there. Verse 36, remember what he says. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. He's come for freedom. So the circumstances are grim, but there is a freedom. And it doesn't come through Abrahamic lineage or enlightenment authenticity. It comes through the son. And so who is he that he can offer this kind of freedom and truth? Who is Jesus? So now we move from who are we to who is he? For them, what's the crowd's answer? Well, it's not, what a great teacher. What a good guru. Like, this is the guy worth, you know, well, he's got some good stuff, some weird. Let's, like, take and, you know, choose the little bits that, you know, we'll leave behind the weird stuff. No, what do they say? Verse 30, 48. The Jews responded to him, are we right in saying you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Who is Jesus? Their answer is an ethnic insult and an accusation of demon possession. They turn his words on their identity back on him. You, not we are the one controlled by a demon. He's just said, you guys are children of the devil. He goes, no, you're the demon-possessed one. You stand, Jesus, in the temple of our God. You stand in a crowd of the blessed Abraham's descendants and claim we are the children of the devil. Meanwhile, you claim to be the true son, the Abrahamic sonship. Even more in verses uh, 40 and 42, what we uh, read over earlier, you claim, Jesus, to have heard, seen, and be sent by God. You claim not just that your teaching is the freeing truth, but that you yourself are the freeing truth. And you say that we're all enslaved sinners. And as Jesus did in verse 46, you have the audacity to claim that you're the one that's free from sin. You, not we, are the deceived and deceiving one. 
I think it's fascinating how in just a few verses, Jesus has brought fans and would-be followers to not just denying him and walking away, but hurling ethnic insults at him and accusing him of demon possession. I don't know if I could do that in 40 verses. But surprisingly, even with all of this said, they continue to debate Jesus. It's not for another 10 verses that they finally take up stones to kill him. So the whole question is, what happened in these 10 verses where they finally got pushed to the point of picking up stones? What did he say was his identity? Well, Jesus first says, I'm not a narcissistic megalomaniac. Jesus says, I'm, I'm not here to make a name for myself, to glory my name. I'm simply here to do the work that my Father has sent me to do. And that work is John 8, 51. Truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I've come to bring not just a freedom of the inner person, but a freedom from death itself. They throw another accusation of demon possession at the crowd with the big question then. You're saying, you're, you know, you'll have the freedom over death. You're saying, there was the big question of, of the beginning. Um, you're, Jesus, you just claimed that anyone who comes to you is never going to die. Abraham and all the prophets died. So are you saying you're greater than Abraham? Who do you think you are? Jesus responds, I am nothing less than the one you call your God has sent me to be. I am doing nothing less than what, God, what has been God's plan all along, which is why he says that line, that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So what Jesus is doing here, Abraham seeing the day of Jesus, Jesus is picking up on this common understanding of the Jewish crowd that the biblical character of Abraham, Father Abraham, had received a vision from God of what the prophets called the day of the Lord. It's described all over the scriptures, but it's a time when God would come to reign as king, that he would judge and work justice for the world. And so this is what Abraham's descendants were waiting for, what Abraham saw that they might experience, that they might be the generation to find it. And Jesus proclaims he's the fulfillment of that hope. Jesus says, that day is my day. The day Abraham rejoiced over is the, my day. The day of the Lord is my day. The day when God would come to this world to renew and restore it, that's me. And so if you were actually Abraham's children, you'd be freaking out right now and rejoicing and celebrating. But you're not. You're only further proving yourselves to not be his people. And so John 8, 57, they think this is laughable. They're blown away. They say, you aren't even 50 years old, yet you've seen Abraham. They're just, they, 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 he's got to be, okay, this is all one long joke. This 30-something-year-old rabbi is claiming to be ancient. They think it's laughable. In John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, this would be an incredible claim enough if Jesus had said, Before Abraham was, grammatically correct, I was. If Jesus was trying to claim that he somehow was pre-existent, this ancient, like, spiritual being or whatever, that pre even lived at the time of Abraham or pre-existed him, the thing that would make sense would be for him to say, before Abraham was, I was. That's the grammatically correct line. Unless Jesus is implying and saying something more. And now it's difficult to overstate the importance of these two words, I am, for the Jewish people. As they go back to one of the most sacred moments of their people's history, in their understanding of God, they would all know these two words by heart. They are, well, let's just find out. The story of Moses at the burning bush, as he's commissioned by God to free his people from slavery in Egypt. You'll see it behind me. The burning bush, Moses is brought astride. He takes off his shoes. He's on holy grounds. And, Mo and God has told Moses to go to Israel, let my people go. And Moses asks, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, this, this is the translation of I am, once again right here, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and he has sent me to you. This is my name. What is the name of God? I am. This is how I'm to be remembered in every generation. The name of God translated in here and throughout the Bible, whenever you see the Lord in all caps, out of reverence for sacredness, the name of God is I am. 
And this is just, you could, I could just be swimming this all day long. A powerful revelation of the identity of the creator of everything and the covenant God of Israel. It speaks to his nature as being utterly self-determining and, utter, uh, and, and self-reliant. He's I am. He's self-determining. He cannot be constrained by anything. He just is. There is no dependency that he has on anything else other than himself. He is wholly self-reliant. He is I am. He can only identify himself by reference to himself. Like if you, Ryan, who are you? Oh, I'm married to Aaron. I'm the dad of, of Emma and Arlo. I'm the son of, of Randy and Gina. I have all these, what do you do for work? Oh, my work, my identity that has all of these dependencies on things outside of myself. Jesus just says I am. By saying I am, he also is saying that he has always been in the present tense. He's without past or future, not I was or I will be. He's I am, I will be who I will be, is I am. He, is a, he has no points of containment or reference of time. He is the beginning and the end. He is sourced in nothing, but is himself the source of everything. This is the personhood and the consciousness that, that springs out into creation in the consciousness and personhood of every human being. In him, as Paul says, we live and move and have our being. And behind all of this is everything that is true and beautiful and good. All that makes your heart ache to put a name on it, God says, I am. This incredible reality-shaking identity of this God that we cannot get our minds around that is I am. And what's so profound is though he cannot be bound by anything in the passage that we just read, he has chosen to identify, to commit himself to work with broken humans. The God who needs nothing, is not dependent on humanity, has chosen, I'm going to commit with this family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so that through their family, ultimately in an awaited son, I might bless the nations of the world. The creator and covenant God of Israel is, I am. And at the climax of his speech, Jesus says what? Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claims, I am, I am. I am the embodiment and full expression of the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In doing so, he lays the groundwork for what we would now go on to call the Trinity. The, the I am is a community of Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus says, I am, I am. I am God come to redeem this sin-enslaved world. I am the one that has come to free those who have been destroyed and deceived by the devil. I am not just a, a, a creation of God. I am not just another God. I am the God, uh, embodiment of the God of Israel. I share in the divine identity of everyone that, that you have ever looked to and said, this is what it means to be the image of God. That every, every Everything that you see in reality, the I am underneath it all, Jesus says, that's me. And as we'll see through his cross, that he is the one who's come to free and save those who have been destroyed and deceived by the devil. When on his cross, the one who is truth would be arrested over a lie. When the one who is truth... We come to free us from our deception. When the one who is truly free would enter into and take on sin's enslavement, when he would be bound and cursed and killed, when he who is the source of life would give himself over to death, when the son would become like the slave so the enslaved human race might once again become sons and daughters. With the sin, the devil, and death's grip broken, he would open the door to freedom and truth and life. Jesus is, all of this is building up. Jesus is saying, this is the truth that if you know will set you free. This is the word that if you re receive will redeem you even from death. It's an incredible claim. And this can't mean anything other than what Jesus is saying and what I've just said because the crowd understands it as well. Finally, after he says, I am, this is the moment that the crowd takes up the stones. Mob justice for the high sin of blasphemy. They didn't do it when he called them demon-possessed or sons of the devil. He didn't do it when he questioned their ancestral identity. He didn't do it at any point other than right after he said, I am. That was the step too far. We know what you've just claimed, Jesus. This is eventually why they had him hung on the cross. And this is why he leaves the temple. It wasn't yet time for that final freeing work. So the crowd clearly understood Jesus' identity claim. They took up stones for it. So the final question is, who is he to you? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? In your mind, when you think through, what is Jesus? What's he like? What's he all about? And who is he in the deepest sense of his identity? And does your answer actually take into account the words that Jesus says about himself? 
You see, for those who want to claim Jesus as a good teacher or an inspired prophet, with all the love and with all the, the, the compassion and grace here, Jesus does not leave that opportunity available to you. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes, I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. We've just read these words. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be a devil of hell. You've read the words. You've read what he says. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something far worse. But don't let us come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that option open to us and he didn't intend to. Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord, Jesus argues. Now worth answering here is a fourth option that uh, has been set forward that's beyond the purview of what Lewis is dealing with here, but some that would say, he's not liar, lunatic, or Lord, he's a legend. That the Jesus of the Gospels, what we've just read in John right here, and these claims is not actually the Jesus of history, but a legend concocted over hundreds of years later. And I've dealt with this multiple times, twice in the past two years, about the authenticity and the reliability specifically of the New Testament and of the Gospels as trustworthy eyewitness accounts of the teachings of Jesus. But here's what I'll say. If this is all moot, then why are you hanging on to Jesus at all? You have no, no, there's, there's no other place to get any idea of Jesus other than this. What do you mean? So you want to take these little snippets of historical references to the miracle worker Jesus? The thing that you resonate with is his teachings. And so if you're going to say, well, you really can't trust any of it, well, who, who gives you the authority to take the whiteout paste and choose what gets to fit in and what doesn't? Once again, it's Rorschach Jesus. You're just choosing to do it with the Bible now. You see, it remains that if, if these are trustworthy and we've got to receive them as they come to us and, and that they have been proven to be reliably given to us, then it remains. Jesus is either, as the crowd say, demon-possessed. He's a liar or he's a lunatic or he's divine. He's Lord. And if you read through the Gospels, look at the life of Jesus. You're not going to find a deceitful narcissist or a maniacal megalomaniac. You will find someone who radiates honesty, vulnerability, joy, compassion, grace, peace, consideration, constancy of character. Yes, conviction. Yes, he speaks truth in a strong way. Absolutely. But if we see and walk away from the life of Jesus that he could not be a liar or a lunatic, we are left with one answer. And so if he is Lord, then what this means is that his claims... His truth that we must receive are not only the truth about his identity, but the truth about ours as well, which honestly, I think for most of us is the harder thing to come to terms with. I think for most of us, the thing that keeps us from jumping into Jesus as Lord is less about his claims to divinity, but the fact that we don't think that we're that bad. We, I said this a moment ago, we don't think we need God to come in the flesh to be the I am and die and save me because I think I'm genuinely pretty, pretty good. And so what I need is like a coach Jesus who sits on the sidelines and cheers me on to go and get things. I don't need freedom. I don't need truth. I have that. I just need a coach. But to receive Jesus as Lord means that his truth about his identity and yours must be received. You and I are apart from him, slaves to sin, addicted to it. We need someone outside of ourselves to break the chain, someone greater than ourselves, stronger than ourselves, to free, to forgive, to empower us, to live in that freedom, to resurrect us from life. We need a son to set us really and truly free. You see, Jesus simply just won't let you get off with the good teacher position. He's he's too explicit. He's too explicit. And we keep going through the coming weeks. He just keeps saying, I am, I am, I am, I am. And every time, he's just going deeper and deeper into, I am the one underneath everything. And so we can either receive him as I am or with the crowds, we can take up stones. But he hasn't left us in the middle of space. And so what does it mean that he is I am to us? Well, like I said, we're going to follow this throughout the rest of our series in the coming weeks. As we look at these remaining I am statements of Jesus, he's going to bring us into these deeper realities of what it means for him to be I am. 
What does it mean that he is I am? It's that he is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. He is the good shepherd. He is the gate. He is the true vine. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. Each of us will take us deeper into the identity of Jesus and what it means that he is I am, and it will also take us deeper into the truth of our identities as well, of what's available to us on the other side of slavery. And so what are we to do? Throughout the passage, Jesus has told us to receive him as I am, as Lord, is first, as he said at the beginning, to continue in his word, to truly be his disciples, to know the truth of who he is, and to be set free. To unlike the crowd, to love him, to receive his love and to pursue him in turn, to give over our entire heart, soul, mind, and strength to him in total devotion. As Beth Felkner Jones as she writes, we are not free to compartmentalize our lives, offering part of us to Jesus, but not the whole. If he is I am, then he, there's nothing that doesn't belong to him. To unlike the crowd, believe in him, to receive him for who he says he is, to trust him with loyal allegiance, and as he says, to keep his words, and to find ourselves kept by him even through the valley of the death shadow. And this is an invitation, hear me, this is an invitation to all of you Though Jesus said everyone who sins is a slave to sin, he also said anyone who receives, everyone who keeps, anybody who continues in my word, they will know the truth and the truth will be set free and they will be kept through death. So if he is, I am. What are we to do? Throughout this passage, he has told him, he has told us to receive him as Lord is, no matter how good or bad you may think you are, to receive the reality that Jesus sees into your situation that it's presently a lot worse than you think, but that your future is immensely brighter than you can possibly imagine right now. And so for those of you here that are disciples of Jesus, I want you to consider, are you continuing in? Are you continuing in? Are you keeping his word? Or is there a part of your life that you compartmentalize away from his lordship? Is there any part of your life that you continue to be enslaved to sin? Jesus desires freedom for you. That's what Jesus wants for you. That's what Jesus has come to you for. And then for those of you that maybe don't identify as a follower of Jesus, or maybe as a follower of Jesus in some way, but not, not this, not, not Lord, not God, the invitation, has Jesus left any other option available to you? And so as we move into a time of response for us to wrestle with these questions, I'm just gonna end with a poem as our prayer from Malcolm Geith, based on today's passage. And so we'll just let this uh, be our prayer. O pure I am, the source of everything, the wellspring of my inner consciousness, the song within the songs I find to sing, the bliss of being and the crown of bliss. You iterate and indwell all the instants wherein I wake and wonder that I am. As every moment of my own existence runs over from the fountain of your name, I turn with Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, with everyone whom you have called to be, I turn with all the fallen race of Adam to hear you calling, calling, come to me. With them I come all weary and oppressed and lay my labors at your feet and rest. Amen.